morning, everyone. Welcome to CISL. I'm, I'm really, really pleased to have all of you here at CISL's new headquarters. We recently moved into this building, so technically speaking, this is our first public event. And also, I want to say welcome to the second day of the China Week 2022. So we are delighted to co-host this event with Allow China Institute at King's College London. This is the building we call it Intopia. And there is a lot of EnviroTech which is deeply embedded in this building. This building only requires 15% of the energy consumption as it of the original building. It is a deep energy retrofitting. You're probably wondering about this building. What's the story behind it? And how does that fit into CISL's vision? Unfortunately, our head of institute, Claire Shine, couldn't join us in person, but she did record the video and to tell you a bit more about CISL's vision and also the building as well. Hello, everyone. I'm Claire Shine, Director and CEO at the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership, or CISL. I'd like to welcome you with brief reflections on our vision for CISL, our plans for the Intopia building, and why Envirotech is important and timely. CISL's vision. Since 1988, we have worked to develop leadership and solutions for a sustainable economy, working in complete independence with business, finance, and governments around the world. In the last five to 10 years, there has, of course, been much progress. Net zero is practically a household term. So it would be tempting to say the case is made. We're far from that. Decarbonisation of the economy is in its real infancy. We lag way behind on nature and the social fabric. Progress is too slow and too fragmented. We also see growing competition for scarce resources deep structural inequalities, and over-concentration of power and influence. So, looking forward, CISL will focus on systems transformation for people, nature, and climate. We need to put humanity at the heart of a new and vibrant sustainability narrative. We seek to empower new voices and build movements for impact, that can align the levers of business, finance, policy, and technology, but also address cultural choices and dynamics. This is a huge opportunity for collective intelligence and purpose-driven leadership. We need to show that change is possible, urgent, and exciting. Which brings me to Intopia. This is a groundbreaking exemplar retrofit for Cambridge and the UK. We've already had an incredible journey of discovery and stamina with architects, contractors, designers and procurement specialists to meet top standards for sustainability, energy efficiency and well-being. But that is only the beginning. We want the Intopia building to become a springboard for innovation and open debate. As Cambridge's former telephone exchange, this is the perfect place to drive radical connectivity. For example, with CISL's own global network of over 28,000 leaders and changemakers. With the university, welcoming new collaborations and linking breakthrough research to real-world policy, finance and business decision-making. With entrepreneurs and SMEs, 
our Canopy Incubator will become a go-to hub that links innovators, startups, our own business and financial networks, researchers, cultural innovators and schools. And with the community, we want Entopia to become a living laboratory on the high street where ideas and invention fuse. Let's come to Envirotech. Time and again, we have seen technological innovation transform the problems and practices we once took for granted. The future calls for far bolder, purposeful investment in the development and rollout of technologies to tackle the global challenges we face. Innovation has, of course, already delivered massive progress. For example, renewable power technologies like solar and wind have reached and surpassed cost competitiveness thresholds. Greater deployment of clean energy and other emerging technologies, such as carbon capture and storage, will lead to economies of scale, predictably boosting further innovation. China has played a huge role in bringing these cost-effective clean technologies to a mass scale. It is now home to most of the world's leading manufacturers of solar photovoltaics. It is driving rapid technological progress in battery electric storage and electric vehicles. In much of China, it is now cheaper to decarbonize the grid rather than continue relying on coal. This innovation pathway can help China achieve two goals, to boost its own economy and benefit the health, environment and well-being for its own people, but also to boost humanity's chances of success in global efforts to halt climate change. We all know that global challenges need global solutions. However, recent years have only sharpened political, economic and ideological differences instead of bringing China, the United States, the European Union and other countries together around common challenges of the 21st century. China has grown more repressive at home, more assertive abroad, and more willing to challenge liberal values everywhere. This trend, if it continues, could directly affect how we, as a global community and as individuals, approach the design, funding, control, and use of critical technologies and infrastructure, right at the time when the scale of the net zero challenge demands us to explore new models for innovation, including, for example, an ecosystem that supports open repositories of intellectual property and rewards high-risk challenge-led research. This dual reality demands that we think more deeply and deliberately about how to provide public goods and regulate emerging technologies by competing with as well as collaborating with China. Thank you. So I'm very grateful to this institute and colleagues at Cambridge for partnering us this year at this event. I'm the director of the Lao China Institute in King's College London. We had our first China week last year which is on the theme of the environment. And so this year we were kind of thinking what to do. An obvious thing would have been we do more political stuff, but then we thought we wanted an easier life. And so we decided to do digital China. However, everything in China involves politics, of course. 
your director just there, Claire, was talking about the challenge to liberal values. In fact, in the speech that Xi Jinping made on Sunday, quite a big section in it on environment, the aspirations to have massive increases in research and development, ideas for China to be an innovator, many areas where we could see collaboration. Although I noticed your director also talked about competition. It's interesting how you can collaborate and compete at the same time. So this week is partly to unpick that. If you just look at China on its own, its ambitions, its activities, its work in virtual reality and technology is huge, right? It becomes a mountain. But if you look at it in context, it's part of a spectrum. And I think a lot of the analysis that I see lacks that, that context. If you look at this one issue just about China, obviously, you're going to think that China is completely stitching up the whole world. But then you realize, of course, that private companies like Facebook, Western governments, everyone is involved in this area. And it is a very messy terrain and one that we're working through at the moment. Today has a very specific theme and some great speakers. I'm very, very grateful for you coming today and for the partnership. Now, without further ado, I'd like to hand over to Bill here, who will be managing the first session. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you, Carrie, for inviting me. And thank you to both the Lao China Institute and the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership for hosting today's event. Our panel is going to talk about digital technology and environmental protection and sort of the nexus of these things as it relates to China. Famously, China is the number one contributor to climate change. It is the worst emitter in the world of greenhouse gases by a good measure and continues to be so. Many also criticize the Chinese government for taking less ambitious steps than perhaps it could or than other countries indeed have towards commitment to net zero on a slower timeline and a less blunt curve. But it's also true that probably over the last 30 years, no country has done more to try to change its directory than China has in this regard. In addition, Kerry referenced Xi Jinping's speech opening the 20th Party Congress, in which you know, he had these nice slogans of, we want to make the sky bluer, the grass greener, and the water cleaner. But he also said, and elaborated at some length, that this can be an opportunity for China. And in fact, it is the ambition of the Chinese government and CCP to use environmental transition as an opportunity to achieve leadership in certain key sectors, to promote greater economic growth going into the future. And so, like Carrie, I am not the real expert in this area, but luckily we have four panelists today who really are experts in different aspects of this. So I invite them to come up and join us on the stage. First, in alphabetical order, we've got David Ferguson, who is the head of Net Zero Innovation for EDF UK. Next, we have Dr. Guo Li from King's College London, postdoctoral associate at the Lao China Institute. Then Sam Gill, sorry, missed the alphabetical order today. <laughs> um, who is CEO of China Dialogue and associated faculty at University of Sussex and an associate fellow at uh, Chatham House. And finally, uh, Jiang Suwei, who is the partner for Strategic International Markets at PricewaterhouseCoopers UK. So please welcome all of them. Now we have. We have, unfortunately, extraordinarily limited time for a hopefully lively discussion and then debate and questions and dialogue with everyone here. 
So let me just first start off very quickly by asking Sam if you could perhaps introduce some of the general challenges for China around climate change, reacting to climate change, and some of the stakes involved, as well as anything else you'd like to elaborate on. Thanks very much, Bill. And thank you to Jie and to Kerry for your warm introductions and for, for the invitation. Yeah, so very briefly, I guess I should set out that I think China is highly vulnerable to climate change, the effects of climate change, and we've seen that in recent months. I'll say a little bit about how then I think the commitment to addressing that through policy is being realized, to what extent that's real, and, and, the, and the sort of scale of it, and the, the urgency and, and ambition, and whether that ambition is high enough. And I'll say a bit more about how we can and should go further, China should go further, and also the world as we approach COP27 and, and sort of critical decisions that need to be made then and beyond. On climate change's effects in China, China's highly vulnerable to the effects of climate change. The North is you know, very chronically drought prone, the South is chronically prone to flooding. You have an export-oriented economy, which means high urbanization along low coastal elevation zones, very exposed to storm surges, the increased likelihood of tropical cyclones and so on, as is likely with climate change. That means with climate change, you see increased uncertainty, higher kind of risks associated with these existing chronic environmental problems. And we've seen that this summer in Chongqing, in Sichuan, there were extensive droughts that led to actually the first nationwide drought warning for, for many years. And unequivocal assessments from central government in China saying this, this is due to the effects of climate change. The, the sort of national climate forecast, the Met Office equivalent and so on, has made that very clear. And I think what's important to note is that this, I think, doesn't come as a surprise to policymakers in China. There's been national assessments of the effects of climate change for at least 15 years now that have, have established that there is a, quite a high degree of consensus, actually, at the central government level that China is, is very exposed to these threats and that these are really critical for water systems, for energy and, and food systems that interlink so tightly with these climate systems. So there is a, a substantial threat. What is the degree of response to this? Well, I think it's, it's pretty substantial too. You know, we saw Xi Jinping's speech in uh, September 2020 at the UN, where he committed to the so-called dual carbon goals to reach carbon neutrality by 2060, peak before 2030. That's significant. You know, it's significant because he made the, that speech at the UN, tied it irrevocably to his own personal political legacy, sent a signal to policymakers to really you know, make something of this initially quite terse statement, but to flesh it out through policymaking, and it was. And significant because it actually means something in terms of global carbon budgets. That really, really does translate into a change in terms of where the trajectory of, of temperature rise goes over the, over the century. And it's significant in terms of the scale of electrification, for example, that, that means. That means electrifying the entire Chinese economy by mid-century, having you know, very significant ramping down of coal over the next, the next decade or two. So you know, really significant kinds of shifts. Now, how is that being fleshed out? Mainly through very extensive kind of policy work moving from this, you know, the, these sort of terse statements in the 14th five-year plan and so on to a wealth of different kinds of sectoral plans and so on. And we're seeing those rolled out constantly. Just over the last few months, we've seen those, particularly on industrial decarbonization. So every sector from aluminium to glass to cement now has a sort of sectoral plan that puts in place how they're supposed to meet these overarching decarbonization goals. And it's sending a real market signal. And I do think it's important and builds on successive five-year plans that have focused on so-called strategic emerging industries like renewables, electric mobility, and so on. Now, why and, and what's driving this? I think, as, as Bill alluded to, a lot of this is really about 
sort of some central political economic goals that are really about national self-interest. So we're talking here about technology leadership, as you alluded to. This is about making China the leading exporter of the technologies that will be needed for a carbon-constrained world. But that's also about economic upgrading, moving from an economy dominated by energy-intensive, polluting, low-cost manufacturing towards innovation and services. And it's also about party legitimacy, you know, dealing with air pollution, dealing with, with water pollution, soil contamination and so on, is seen as, as, as an exercise also in trying to address an issue of widespread public concern. So all of these, I think, intersect with some key kind of political economic narratives. Also, energy security. It's been clear for Chinese economic planners for a long time that diversifying away from imported fossil fuels is important if you want to avoid the volatility in pricing and the geopolitical entanglements that that brings. Now, that unfortunately is double-edged, and I'll leave it with that note, which is to say, for vested interests in China and for the existing coal industry and so on, that energy security argument is still an important tool in their box for arguing for why you need to keep coal online. And that's one of the major kind of push and pull points where I think China still does need to go further. Clearly, there's still the, the approval of new coal-fired capacity. That's a problem. However, it's still important to note that actually capacity isn't the same as generation, isn't the same as utilization. And that utilization continues to fall, not least with a softening economy. One hopes that actually we've already peaked in terms of coal generation in China and that this sort of low carbon revolution will play out. Okay, great. Thank you very much. That touches on actually a lot of different issues, and one of them is an administrative challenge, right, and sort of how do we actually implement some of the nitty-gritty policy work that, that is encompassed in these big platitudes that we hear, for example, at the Party Congress speech. So on that note, I might invite Guo Li to talk a little bit about digitization of environmental governance and you know, how we can use technology to implement some of these finer points and anything else that you might like to. Thank you, thank you, Bill, for the nice introduction. And it's great pleasure to be here. And big thanks to colleagues from Lao China Institute at King's College London and the Cambridge Institute of Sustainability Leadership. So technology is at the heart of China's pursuit of ecological civilization. Um, as everybody has been mentioning, Xi Jinping's speech has to be analyzed today. He specifically urged to speed up the green transformation of China. This kind of urgency is only used for this specific policy area. So no surprise, the technology will be driving this green transformation. So today I'm going to introduce evolution of China's environmental tech briefly. And then since we have experts on the climate issue aspect, I will specifically focus on the policy and administrative aspect of biodiversity, conservation, and environmental pollution, which are less focused usually in people's talk about the, the technology implication in the China's environmental issue areas. And then I will probably dwell on some of the governance aspect of those digital implication in the environmental protection. China's development of environmental protection and high-tech started earlier, but a clear strategy to pursue environmental talk emerged in the early 2000s when China started to mainstream its many environmental protection targets into the national five-year plan and issued industrial policy that really shaped today's world. That is China's medium to long-term development plan of science and technology. And then in the several sectors that China identified as strategic emerging sectors, including biotechnology, big computing, you also see new energy, new energy vehicles, and they become the focus of national agenda. 
Uh, fast forward to Xi Jinping's era, his, his launch of e ecological civilization just doubled down on this tech environmental pathway of sustainability development. As Sam just mentioned, this strategic and national interest-oriented eco-civilization has brought great success in the uh, renewable energy and new vehicle sectors. However, this does not benefit China's environmental protection and biodiversity conservation in a cross-board fashion. So China for sure has made great progress in science and technology in those areas. As for instance, not many years ago, there was basically no wastewater treatment capacity in China, but China has the biggest wastewater treatment, urban waste treatment infrastructure in the whole world. And China has also created a national network of air quality monitoring stations at the prefectural level cities, all of it, and created provincial level to share those information, supposedly with public as well, to monitor the local emissions. On the conservation side, you see drones, satellite, remote sensoring systems, and also other infrared cameras commonly being used. However, it's focused on the big data and the artificial intelligence have only been picked up lately. The so-called comprehensive or systematic policy decision to promote the big data was made in 2016. The Ministry of Environmental Protection created our big data capacity. And that is follow the national strategy to promote big data, signaling that big data is becoming a strategic sector. But the implementation varies. Many of the provinces have created big data plans. However, those encountered the data collection problems because these data are fragmented, uh, collected by different departments and local governments in different standards, in different qualities. It cannot be easily shared. And there's no mechanism to share them across these different div divided governments units. So to get air pollution data, you likely as a different department have to go to their website to copy their data while this data are not downloadable. So this created a problem. At national level, though, China successfully created a few very big platforms by diversity conservation. AI has also made big breakthroughs in national park reforms. Great, thanks. In this smartest of digital buildings, I keep scanning around looking for the analog, and I don't see it, and so that's why I've had to very rudely look at my phone several times to try to get a sense of what time it is. I can see from that we are rapidly running out of time. With this many speakers on such a very short panel, I do want to leave some time for question and answer, so if I could ask everybody just to try to, try to keep your remarks as pithy as possible. Next, I would ask David. Uh, about one of the key sectors, in fact, in which some of this new governance needs to be applied and where the government really needs to turn its attention in order to decarbonize or to reduce emissions, which is the energy sector, mm. right? So, I mean, the energy sector the world over has been sort of the leading contributor to emissions. I was a bit surprised, actually, to see in the opening digital speech that it's actually cheaper in China to decarbonize the electric grid than it is to continue relying on coal. I hadn't heard that before, and it didn't strike me as intuitive, but that may be obvious to people who actually study this topic seriously, which you do and I don't. So if you want to comment at all on the energy sector mm. more generally, or specifically on this, or anything else? Uh, all right, well, I'll try to cover both of those. Yeah. When we think about decarbonization, the natural thing is you start with the electricity system and you mm. decarbonize that, and then you use that low-carbon electricity to decarbonize other stuff. It's a wonderful model. It doesn't work perfectly because there's some things that you can't really easily decarbonize with electricity, like making steel and making cement. But anyway, China is still fundamentally a fossil fuel economy. 60% of the installed capacity is coal in China. 
but 70% of production comes from coal and 80% of electricity consumption at peak times mm -hmm. is from coal. So coal is still absolutely crucial for the economy. And this week, the NEA announced that coal will remain, I can't remember the word they used, the foundation stone mm -hmm. for the energy system in China for the next decade or so. And the reason for that is, yeah, it's cheap to build renewables, it's cheap to build solar PV, particularly in China, where it is cheaper than here to do both of those things. But there are challenges. PV works when it's sunny, wind turbines work when it's windy, but it's not always like that. So this is where uh, you need to balance the low carbon with the reliability and the affordability, the kind of the energy trilemma that the energy industry faces, and find the right balance. So in the short term, China is focusing still on coal while massively ramping up renewables. And that scale of investment is amazing. It's forecast that this year they will install 150 gigawatts of solar and wind. So bear in mind that in the UK we have 70 gigawatts of everything. So they're installing double the capacity of the UK energy system this year, and that's just solar and wind. But that will make a tiny dent in the overall consumption of electricity in China. So it gives you an idea of the challenge that China faces. But the great news is that the manufacturing base in China is helping the rest of the world decarbonize. So 70% of the world's solar PV is made in China. The next biggest is Vietnam with 8%. So it really dominates this sector. Chinese wind turbines are bigger and cheaper than anyone else's. China is making most of the world's electric cars, most of the world's lithium-ion batteries. You know, so really, China is itself decarbonizing, but also enabling the decarbonization of everyone else as well. Great. And of course, involved in that is a great deal of capital, right, that needs to be mobilized, and not only by the state, right? So we need to think about sort of where investments come from, capital flows around that, and how the global business environment interacts with what's going on specifically in the energy sector and in other green technology sectors in China. So I invite Sue to comment on that and anything else that she'd like to sure. expand upon. No, thank you, Bill, and I will be brief. You're just sort of picking up on two points, actually building on one of the messages Claire was saying about compete and collaboration. And then I want to also pick on what Kerry said earlier around that sort of context. So on those compete and collaborate, David, you said so yourself on the sort of solar side 70%, but on the offshore wind, 60% of the global supply chain comes from China. While China is rapidly trying to build up its own renewable capabilities and capacity in China, it's also helping the world. But that comes to the compete question. So if you look at the very ambitious plan we have here in the UK for offshore wind, just picking on one small part of the supply chain cables. And the cable manufacturing, at the current ambitious plan we've got, it will take us 10 years to get enough cable to connect those. We can build all the offshore wind farm, but we can't actually have enough cable to connect them back to the grid. So that's the reality we're facing. Over 60% of those cables are being manufactured in China. So there is that dilemma of where do we find that supply chain? How do we build up the capacity and capabilities here more near shore in the UK or in Europe? And how do we upskill the labor force to be able to do that and employ the relevant technology. Whilst we want to compete with China, we also need to collaborate with China to actually get those technologies over here. And perhaps also going back to your point, Bill, in terms of the capital 
inflow, the investment that's needed to build those greenfield investment here in the UK. So I, I think that sort of compete versus collaboration model is absolutely one of the largest challenges we're going to face if we were all going to do this together globally. And second point in terms of uh, context, I just want to widen out a little bit more around digital and technology in general. Some of you here may have listened through the speech that Jeremy Fleming made at RUSI last week around China. So if China is the problem, what's the answer was the sort of title of his speech. And I think what goes to core of that is is the worry about, well, I mean, he made it very clear, it's the CCP, not the general China public. Um, he's talking about there is usage of technology to get into or interfere with the way of life, not only in China, but also globally. One of my clients is a company called DJI. Their drone technology is being used very widely in energy sector, climate change monitoring. They are on the entity list in the US. They are making rapid expansion in Europe at the moment. So if I link that with Sir Jeremy Fleming's uh, speech last week, you know, he would stand there and say, yeah, but we can't let that technology penetrate too much into the UK because what happens to the data that got collected? Where does it go? How is it being used? Does it feed back to the Chinese government? So we can't be sure about that. So maybe we don't use that technology. But the reality <laughs> is nobody else currently has that technology. I mean, they sell into the Ministry of Defense here. They also sell into the military in the US because simply we do not have the technology that they have right now. So how do we deal with that? I don't have answers to those, but I think those yeah. are really big challenges we face. Oh, this actually brings up two points about digital surveillance and sort of implications for law, society, and politics around that. Another is the kind of geopolitics of technology and security competition around technology and dual-use and multi-use technology, which certainly is a hot topic of conversation. More directly on what's been addressed by all four speakers, though, around climate changes, digitization of governance, the energy sector, and mobilizing the resources to address these challenges in China and how China's addressing that affects the rest of the world. In about the last 10, 12 minutes, let me invite questions, commentary from the floor, if anybody has questions or points to raise at all. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for this amazing dialogue. Uh, so I'm Karen. I'm from Imperial College. We know Southeast Asia, including China, can be really important powerhouse for nature-based solution in the coming years. And then nature as an underlying asset could be really important for, for example, the carbon market. So my question is, what's your opinion on good use of technology to bring more investment in nature? Thank you for the question. I think nature solution in China now has a big component of tech, which means big data and AI and satellite sensoring technologies. And China is obviously driving up this development. Two months ago, China issued a call to strengthening the digital transformation of ecology and environmental protection, meaning um, it's going to develop a very integrated information collecting, analyzing, and verifying system. And the thing is to cross-board promote them within China's nature conservation, environmental pollution monitoring, but also try to collaborate with big tech companies like Huawei and with international environmental organizations such as IUCN. They have a collaboration program 
called Gardening Nature with Science and Technology. They have a pilot program in Mexico to introduce the digital infrastructure in there to monitor wildlife conservation, mangrove forest conservation. This is a great benefit, has drawbacks as well. This needs to be really closely analyzed and managed, consulted well with the public. That's the part that's lacking in China's nature solution agenda at this point. Thanks. Great. Let's see if there are some additional questions. Hi, everyone. My name is Geraldine Durand from Innovate UK. And, and I've got a question for David Ferguson. You mentioned coal being the problem and also all the effort uh, that China is currently doing to, to move toward net zero. What are your thoughts about hydrogen and CCUS? And is it something that EDF is collaborating with China right now? Well, yeah, I can answer that quite quickly. I think CCUS is going to be crucially important, particularly in China, but in other countries as well. The theory is wonderful. The reality is that not enough is being done on CCUS. It's still largely unproven at an industrial scale. It's an area that we're looking at a bit, not a huge amount, because we don't have much thermal generation. Hydrogen is going to be massively important because of those other sectors that you can't decarbonize with electricity. So a lot of chemical processes, steel making, there are areas where hydrogen can really help. Trucks, trains, boats, but it's got to be green hydrogen. So made with renewables rather than from gas or coal or any other uh, existing dirty processes. We have tried to build a hydrogen business in China. It, it was quite hard, but that's because when you're building a hydrogen business, you need to find the, the supply and the demand at the same time, which is quite a tricky thing to do, but hydrogen is going to be really important. Well, I was just wondering if the panel could elaborate maybe a little bit about the investment from the top, both financially and wise. How is that filtering down to the local governments and the local innovations, place-based solutions? You're mentioning as well that sharing data is an issue. Could you share a little bit about that? How do you think the ambition will be filtered down from the top to local governments and yeah, place-based solutions, let's say? Okay, that's actually a very good question to kind of segue into the closing round, as it were, in which I just invite each of our panelists to take maybe 30 to 45 seconds, both to answer that question and also to elaborate a little bit or drive home one or two key points from before. Let's start this time with Suwei and work across the other way. Sure. Just touching on that, the determination is absolutely there. But I think practically, there's a lot of hurdles to overcome inside China. And as I said earlier, I think one key point to leave the audience with, there is no easy solution to what we are looking at. But absolutely, China has to be part of the overall equation if we were serious about solving this problem globally. But geopolitically, I think there will be a long way to go in terms of finding that right balance between protecting national security issues in individual countries versus common adoption of technology and solutions in helping all of us to address this challenge together. Great, thank you. On that question, I have no idea, I'm sorry. But two things I'd like to add, and that's around what we can learn from China. So I think China could be a competitor and a collaborator as well, but I think because China is different political, cultural, geographic context, it does allow innovations to brew up in a slightly different way, and I think there's a lot that we can learn. And there's two things I'd point to. So we talk a lot about electric vehicles, and we all just think about the Tesla, the car, where in China, for every one electric car that's sold, there are 10 tiny little scooters, three-wheelers, delivery trucks, you know, all these mad vehicles you see on the streets that solve and serve 95% of our mobility needs. I'm waiting for them to come to Europe where there's huge potential 
The other is in how China loves digital technology and how we can leverage the smartphone to change behavior change. We can change the energy system, but we also need to change our energy behaviors. So things like ant forest is a really nice example of something that's built into everyday interactions, everyday smartphone use, but is tweaking individual human behaviors with real world outcomes that benefit the environment. So I think there's a stack that we can learn as well as competing and collaborating yeah. on the technical stuff. Great, great, thank you. Uh, just be brief, I think, first of all, China faces a lot of challenges in developing this digital technology in its environmental and conservation sectors. So we probably should really look closely at its internal institution, the administration, instead of just assuming that it's taking over everywhere. Secondly, I think collaboration scientifically is still very important because China needs to be incorporating experience, consultations from all over the world. Thanks. So I'll come back to that, that issue around innovation and the, the gap between central and local. And David was too modest in saying he knows nothing about this because you actually hit on it exactly the right example, which is the e-bike. So electric mobility in the two-wheeler form is a great example of how this bottom-up innovation examples do exist in China, often with really no state support. In fact, in the case of the electric bicycle, they were actively deterred by state policy. They're mostly banned in cities, yet they just they came in at a price point that worked for ordinary people because you don't need charging infrastructure. It's already grid integrated because you flip the battery up and take it upstairs and plug it in. And they, they just kind of worked. So they were a demand-side, demand-led form of innovation. China's doing the right thing on the top-down stuff. You do, every technological transformation that's ever happened has needed long-standing, patient, big state supports and R&D funds and all the rest of it. But you also need to harness those, those demand-side things that are coming up if you really want to be effective. And you know, there are other examples too, like solar water heaters and so on, that again have come out of the, the kind of grassroots innovation model. And harnessing that, I think, is actually really important and often overlooked in Chinese state policy. I think that's a really interesting point as well, because there's, there's a moment at which the top down meets the bottom up. So solar water heaters proliferated in China in the aftermath of the 2008 to early 2009 economic crisis when demand stimulus gave people vouchers to install them. Yes, people wanted them, they, they were already out there. Same thing with electric bikes, you know, the, the almost prohibition on petrol-powered yeah. motorcycles yeah. and the difficulty both in price and regulation of getting a, a car means that electric bicycles are really attractive yeah. for many people. So the, this combination, I think, of the top-down and the bottom-up uh, can be really important. With that, then I think we can close. Thank you all very, very much once again for attending and for your attention. And thank you to all of our panelists for very insightful and interesting comments. Thanks.